0: There's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time.
1: They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape.
0: Good evening, listeners.
1: Good evening, listeners. Good evening. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Joseph Valencia.
2: And I'm Lisa Hildebrand at Oregon State. We have more than 4000 graduates in and- students and postdoctoral fellows in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student or a postdoc at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages.
1: This episode of Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight on the show, our guest is Lauren Diaz. Lauren is a PhD candidate in the Department of Fisheries, Wildlife, and Conservation Sciences. Welcome, Lauren.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're excited to have you, Lauren.
2: So, your research is uh, all about fish, and uh, the particular fish being rainbow trout. Uh, Tell us a little bit about rainbow trout and the fact that there is not just the rainbow trout, but also the steelhead?
0: Yeah, I would love to. Um, So Pacific salmon are a big deal out here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, You know, people know a lot, usually growing up about like Chinook salmon um, being, you know, the fish that um, goes out to the ocean and comes back to the same place that they always Uh, to the same place that they were born. Um, So rainbow trout actually kind of do the same thing but uh, in a slightly different way. So rainbow trout and steelhead trout, so these are the same species of fish um, that I'm going to be referring to both of them together as omicus, which is an abbreviated version of their Latin name. Um, And so... Omicus oh, is uh, what we call facultatively anadromous, so um, they are a species that can either go out to the ocean and come back similar to other species of salmon, or they can hang out in freshwater year-round, which is what people usually think of as rainbow trout.
1: So if these are the same species, um, what are some of the characteristics that visually at least would distinguish the, these two forms?
0: So um, rainbow trout tend to be a lot smaller um, as adults than steelhead. That's kind of part of the uh, reason that there are these two uh, life history strategies that are operating um, either in the same populations or same metapopulations. So freshwater tends to be a lot less productive than the ocean, especially at higher latitudes, um, because it's colder water. There's less prey resources. So uh, fish don't get to grow as big. Um, And so in areas where maybe... Um, There's a lot of like freshwater volatility, like uh, really dynamic uh, conditions every single year. Um, uh, These fish are probably more likely to go out to the ocean where they can get really big. And then by the time they come back, they are um, they're able to lay a lot more eggs. um, And so and then the males are able to like outcompete smaller males. Um, But then there's a trade off here so that um, if you stay in freshwater, you have a much higher survival rate as a fish. Um so there's a lot less things that will kill you. Yeah. Um so you're way more likely to um persist for multiple years and spawn mm. multiple times um versus uh the anadromous counterparts steelhead which are uh usually typically going to spawn one time. Uh they can spawn up to four or five times just like rainbow trout, but it's really really rare and uh the percentages of populations that do that are really low. Um so it's it's this really cool like fitness trade off uh, that's kind of constantly in flux between the two of them. Mm. You
2: mentioned life history choices. So how yeah how is that decided? Whether you're one or the other, are you just born as one, or can can the fish sort of make a decision about whether or not it's going to be steelhead or rainbow trout?
0: So that uh, is kind of the entire uh goal of my dissertation and the goal Perfect. of many dissertations prior and many to come oh. <laughs> is to try and figure out uh how that works a fish mystery <laughs> um, a huge fish mystery um so basically all fish are born as like the same thing so a rainbow trout in fresh water can produce a fish that will become a steelhead and a steelhead can produce a rainbow trout um, there are like genetic inheritance the um, things that can go on. There are maternal traits that can be passed down. So, for example, if a steelhead female is a lot bigger, that female is going to produce larger eggs, mm. and uh, those larger eggs are going to produce larger fry, which larger fish, and then larger fish are able to um, more likely to smolt, which means um, that they outmigrate and go to the ocean mm-hmm. um, because they're more li- likely to survive um, migration in the ocean environment. Um, But then, um, yeah, rainbow trout produce smaller fish. And so those things do kind of get passed down a little bit. But it's really um, kind of this, like, nature nurture situation where we have not figured out um, which one is more dominant in what environment. And so in areas where uh, growth is really high in the, uh, um, like, during rearing, then um, even if the genetics and maternal influences are there telling a fish to, um, be one thing or another, the, if, if they grow to a certain size, um, then they're going to do what is best for them, you Mm -hmm. know, regardless. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's something that we call, um, the portfolio effect. Um, Mm -hmm. so this is a concept that, that started in like the financial sector. So if you think of like a portfolio of stocks, Mm -hmm. um, so each stock has like different, um, levels of risk and Mm -hmm. different amounts of volatility and so if you have a lot of different kinds of stocks then you're more likely to be resilient to kind of landscape landscape scale disturbances Mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that so they they tend to have these two uh, life histories that either one can take over at any time given the environmental conditions that are present
1: So how long does an individual fish have to sort of I don't want to say decide, but make this branching in its life process between staying in, in fresh water versus going out?
0: Yeah, so another thing that can vary pretty widely. So um, so just a little primer on like the steelhead life cycle, mm-hmm. um, omicus life cycle. Um, so uh, for a winter run steelhead, which are the most common type, um, by run I mean the timing when the adults come back in from the ocean. So there are two different runs that constitute like two different not subspecies, but they're treated as different species kind of. Mm. Um, so for winter run, for example, um, they come in um, around fall and spawn in the winter and then emerge kind of like early spring. And so they can either uh, rear during the summer and grow big enough depending on the growth conditions to outmigrate into the ocean the following fall. Or they s- decide to stay another year in fresh water and keep growing Or they can decide to mature. So every single year they have those kind of like three options. Um, And usually by the time they're around age four, they've chosen a pathway.
1: So you wouldn't see a very mature fish of one or the other kind of converting.
0: Right. So once they choose a pathway um, and smolt. So it's actually like a physiological process that they undergo, um, which uh, is basically like a juvenile goes through kind of like a trout puberty um, and it helps them. <laughs> it helps them tolerate salt water, so they become a lot more like silvery and elongated, mm-hmm. um, and a lot more skinny. They kind of stop eating at this stage, mm-hmm. um, and so this makes them better swimmers. So they're able to kind of go, you know, downstream and into the ocean. Um, and so, yeah, that once they do that, they no longer can decide to like mature in freshwater or stay in freshwater after, afterwards um, and then vice versa. If a fish matures in freshwater, it's never going to smolt and mm. go to the ocean.
2: You mentioned fish management earlier and there's something a little, I mean, fish management is very complicated because there's so many stocks in these different runs throughout the year, but there's something a little, uh, I guess a little strange about um, steelhead versus rainbow trout in terms of the ESA, the environmental, no, the Endangered Species Act. <laughs> Do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So, so it's a really interesting application of the ESA. Um, so steelhead are considered in many places a distinct population segment. Um, and under the Endangered Species Act, you can protect a distinct populace, population segment if it has some kind of like unique evolutionary history, unique environment, unique kind of like adaptations. Um, And so, in a lot of places where steelhead are federally threatened, the uh, resident version of rainbow trout are not. Um, And so, this presents a lot of, like, weird gray area that is up to interpretation when it comes to enforcing the ESA and meeting regulatory needs associated with, um, like, managing and monitoring monitoring these populations, because um, all omicus that are born have not chosen whether Mm -hmm. they are steelhead or rainbow trout. right. So um, if so, technically, the, the juveniles are not protected, and then the adult rainbow trout that can produce steelhead offspring are not protected. So only once they have selected a pathway mm. are they protected. So it's kind of a strange thing to work around.
2: Yeah, especially because, I mean, yeah, all those juveniles could technically turn into steelhead, but if they're not being protected, then maybe they don't. I mean, like, that's the extreme case, but then maybe, you know, they die from some, I don't know, human caused event. And then you have, I don't know, no steelhead that, that run.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's a kind of a, um, controversy. I would, maybe not controversy, just like maybe disagreements about, um, what is better to just like augment, um, entire Omicus populations, like, you know, increase, numbers of resident rainbow trout. Mm. Um assuming that if you just increase numbers of all of them, enough of them will be steelhead, um just based on like current levels of how many uh fish um outmigrate. Um or whether you should kind of like arbitrarily try and shift population structures so that a higher proportion of the population um outmigrates as a steelhead. Mm. Um but then if you do that and you are reducing the numbers of the population for whatever reason um then that that can also like um introduce some i don't know risk and volatility there mm-hmm. so yeah it's it's an evolutionary strategy so my my personal opinion <laughs> let's um, hear it <laughs> is um that it's kind of weird that we are kind of arbitrarily placing this human value on which life history trajectory we we think is more important and more valuable and um some of it is definitely like economic and and cultural you know steelheader have always been like a really prized fish mm-hmm. um, and their rent sizes in some places are like abysmal and so like there's definitely important like cultural aspects around that especially when you are talking about like indigenous communities and their associations with steelhead. Um, and that in itself is enough reason to, like, want to protect mm-hmm. sure. that life history, se- um, po- uh, distinct population segment. Um, but if a population, um, at least the way I kind of see it after several years of, you know, studying all of these things, if a population has shifted to, to resident rainbow trout, it seems like they're doing that because that's the most advantageous way to exist in that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so... It really just comes down to what have we done to the environment that has led to these shifts mm-hmm. um, rather than trying to yeah arbitrarily kind of like boost one at the expense of the other
1: and so how much do we know about what the historical balance between those two subpopulations was, and is that how policy is being made is just to like kind of keep the status quo of before
0: yeah, so we know very little about um what these uh, what these populations were like uh, pre you know western expansion um, when we started actually documenting these things in like a western way um, but it's uh, thought based on just like evolutionary history of salmonids as a whole that um, they kind of exist in this metapopulation mosaic across the entire landscape so um, Omicus also have like the broadest range of any Pacific salmonid so, they go all the way from Baja, California, um, up through the Pacific Rim into Northeastern Russia. Wow. <laughs> so that's like a lot of different environments. Um, so you have a lot, a lot temperature of temperature difference yeah. to start out with. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you have, you know, Southwestern desert, you have Mediterranean, California climates, you have glaciers, you know, all yeah. of that together. And so in all of these places, there's going to be like mosaics, uh, and different distributions of of different life histories um, that were um, that have adapted to that particular environment, um, and so yeah, it's kind of just like a way to to ensure that no matter where you are, if there's like massive disturbances, then there will always be kind of like an insurance policy piece of the population left over. So in um, places with access to the ocean, um, it is. Assumed at this point that both existed, kind of in flux uh, for most of the time. Mm. Um, there are red band trout, which are a subspecies of rainbow trout that are only resident, um, and that has to do with I don't know glaciation things. It's not <laughs> <laughs> not in our lifetime. <laughs> 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 That's not the section of um, of the species that I really work on very much, so I, I can't talk much about it. But um, yeah, so um, besides that, it's assumed that both of them kind of existed historically everywhere. Mm.
2: So zooming in a little more to uh, your research and specifically your study area. So you do research in the Central California Valley. Can you tell us a little bit about what the sort of problems or, yeah, I guess problems that uh, are that omicus face there?
0: Yeah. So um, the California Central Valley is composed of the uh, San Joaquin and Sacramento River Valleys. So those are two massive river systems that both drain into the San Francisco Bay. So they basically provide, like, most of California's water, Mm. um, which uh, water in California is an incredibly contentious issue. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And so specifically um, in kind of the places that I work, so I uh, am studying um, the Stanislaw River a little bit more in depth than other places as kind of my model system. And so this is a tributary of the San Joaquin River, um, so a little bit south of the bay. And um, it is impounded, which means it has um, something impeding, some kind of barrier that impedes regular um, water fish passage. Um and so in, in this situation, it's a dam. Actually, every single major tributary of both of these rivers in the Central Valley is dammed. Wow. So mm. that's kind of really the main cause of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, for for Omicus specifically, um, they, they lost about 80% of their historic habitat in the Central Valley. Um, compared to other Pacific Salmonids, um, they, they used a lot more of the like, more upstream, higher gradient, higher elevation areas. Um, Chinook salmon, on the other hand, um, spawn lower in the watershed, so mm-hmm. um, where where it's kind of like more lower elevation, warmer water, lower gradient. Um, so impoundments have affected Omicus a lot more than um, other salmonid species. And yeah, so these rivers are impounded by dams, um, which is for, um, it's for flood control. It's for uh, retaining water for irrigation, for municipal needs. I mean like enormous populations of people rely on these river systems. And um, there's also a lot of like water pumps and diversions associated with irrigation and, um, and cities. Like I, I like to call the, the the Bay Delta area where like both of these major watersheds converge kind of like California's plumbing system. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> because So much of the environment that um, Omicus uh, used to move through is now kind of like, concrete pumps mm. <laughs> and we have to do things like truck them around pumps it's wow. called salvage oh my gosh <laughs> as
1: in truck the fish
0: yeah literally put them in a truck and move okay. them to the other side well, because because they've they
2: physically themselves cannot get through anymore <laughs> yeah so they get wow. they get trapped and is, and, is um, that in
1: the up direction or the up direction or the down direction
0: that's usually when they're going into the ocean um when this happens so it smolts um, and so all of these uh, water pumping operations, and, and it's the Central Valley Project, which kind of is the um, entity that um, that manages all of these dams and pumps, um, because steelhead are threatened. They can only do so much take, which take under ESA terms is like how much fish you kill, basically. Uh, so they have to minimize take at the pumps. Therefore, we spend millions of dollars in taxpayer funds, <laughs> putting uh, fish in trucks and uh, taking them out to San Francisco. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> wild
2: how we're uh, create yeah the the solutions we come up with to the problems that we have created ourselves
0: yes absolutely yeah yeah and this is a really common thing that's done also um with major dams that don't have uh, fish passage is literally just putting them in vehicles so what so what is a, a fish passage is something that is built in for example to uh, a, a a barrier? Yeah, so it's really hard to retrofit a, a dam or barrier with fish passage. Um so like fish ladders and stuff like that. A lot of times people go to like dams as like a tourism thing um mm. and you get to see like the fish going up the fish ladder. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Um so that is a thing that exists. Um it doesn't exist in most of the Central Valley dams. So mm-hmm. like they get to the dam and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um and then in things like pumps it's it's more of like a um, we we put in like a screening measures um, in order to like stop them from getting into the pumps. Mm. Um, there's also some things like um, I went to a, a fisheries conference a year or two ago and they were uh, showing this new machine called a whoosh, which <laughs> is literally <It> just sounds <laughs> fun. Yeah, it's literally just like a tube water slide that oh, like right. cannons the fish <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> to the other side of, of whatever you want to get them to the other side Are of. Are they okay? Um, <laughs> I mean, they're probably confused. Okay, okay, but they just keep swimming. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wild. Yeah, fisheries management is crazy. Um, especially I, this is my first time like working with fish is this PhD project. Um, and the, one of the, the biggest, uh, weird things that I've had to wrap my mind around is just like the amount of resources (laughs) that goes into fisheries management compared to any other kind of management Mm. of wildlife. So yeah, crazy to think about.
1: So lots of difficulties and barriers for the fish themselves. Um, what are, what are kind of the challenges for you as a researcher in understanding what's going on in these complex water networks
0: yeah so um when i when i took on this position i was kind of like a little bit naive thinking oh like i'm gonna be studying rainbow trout like there's nothing left to study for rainbow trout that's like (laughs) the most common game fish like rainbow trout have been introduced to pretty much like every country in the world uh for sport fishing and you know farms and so i'm like there can't be anything left to know um But, uh, yeah, newsflash to me, uh, that we actually know so little and they're so hard to study and there's so much uncertainty around every single like parameter in a population that we're trying to understand. So by parameter, I mean like survival rates, um, recruitment rates, Mm -hmm. so like birth and immigration rates and stuff like that. Like it seems simple, but it's actually so, so difficult to put a number on those things. Um, And so we are trying to, my my project is part of a a broader kind of like decision support model that's being developed for the Central Valley. So basically like an objective quantitative model that can tell us what is the least worst decision based on how much information we know. Um, And so that way, even with, even though we have a lot of uncertainty and like, how we are characterizing these populations, like quantitatively, we can still be like, okay, based on what we do know, this seems like it might not be the worst thing. And then we can do that and then implement it and learn from it and then add that information back into the model and kind of this cycle that mm-hmm. we call adaptive management, <laughs> which is just kind of like, um, management as experimentation, um, and then learning from it, um, So yeah, lots of uncertainty and that uncertainty for Omica specifically comes from, um, the fact that they, they haven't really been targeted for, um, monitoring for a long time. So a lot more emphasis has been put on them over the last maybe like 10 or 20 years. Um, but because they are not, um, such an important economic fish as like Mm. Chinook or Coho, um, then they, they don't receive the majority of the funding or the attention. So a lot of our monitoring programs for salmonids have just kind of focused on, like, okay, how many Chinook are passing this weir? Like, what is the run size for Chinook? And then we incidentally catch some steelhead. Um, they're also, they're, they're rarer, uh, so it's not like, Chinook, there's like 30,000 fish that pass through a point over the course of two months or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's these broad monitoring operations that are, like, long-term, have existed forever, know what they're doing. With steelhead, it's kind of, like, a lot more spread out. Like, there will be, like, one or two fish every few weeks for, like, a longer period of time. So um, it's it's harder to target. Um, as far as the, the juveniles outmigrating, they're better swimmers than any of the other mm. uh, Salmonids. Um, so they're able to evade the kinds of traps that we would use. Um And yeah, so all of those things kind of put together leads to um, pretty like low quality data Mm. Um, and then add in the fact that um, all these things are happening in different places by different agencies, different Mm. NGOs that don't really talk to each other, uh, use different methods that don't line up together. So we're, we're putting together a, a puzzle of pieces that, like, don't click together. And we, sure. like, have to fill in all of the empty spaces in between. Mm. And how is that going? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's going. Um, so I that's part of what I am trying to do. Um, not as a whole, because I don't have, like, 30 years to do a dissertation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a <laughs> tiny little piece of it. Um. So I am using simulation modeling to try and answer these questions. So the benefit of simulation modeling is that you can basically have no data, um, which is uh, as somebody who has previously collected and analyzed data (laughs) as science Mm -hmm. is like (laughs) a very strange thing to think about. Also, Um, you can basically just kind of like do what we call sensitivity analyses, which is like you put in a number for what you think a parameter is um, and toggle it around and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, so something like playing around
2: with the birth rate or with the recruitment rate, for example, Yeah, those kinds of parameters.
0: Yeah, exactly. And a lot of these things maybe just like, depending on what question we're asking, like don't actually make a difference or, Mm -hmm. or maybe we have some like more conceptual understanding of what's going on. But then when we actually like crunch the numbers on it, it's like, Oh, we think that this thing is really important, but it's probably not, Mm -hmm. um, given what we know, you know, Mm -hmm. it's our, it's always given what we know. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of fun, um, and so to do that, I I'm creating what we call an individual-based model, which is basically um, so this is trout sims, <laughs> is what's happening. Um, my my dissertation is a uh, is a trout video game, um, <laughs> glorified trout video game. <laughs> nice. Um, and so I am basically creating this world, um, based on real based on um, Actual like depth and velocity and discharge measurements of the of these river segments, um, creating the world that the fish are um, interacting with. So they are selecting habitat based on like how much prey there is and like metabolism and swim speed and like evading bigger fish. And if there's already bigger fish in this patch, they can't be in this patch, so they go to the next patch. And so that way, you're you're putting together um, like the tiny pieces of individual behavior mm-hmm. and um, getting kind of broader scale patterns from it, mm-hmm. instead of just like thinking that we know what the patterns are because it's become abundantly clear that we we don't. <laughs> um, so so trying to to get it at it from the other end of like when we put all these pieces together, given. You know, we we understand how like prey influences growth rate. So mm-hmm. like those things kind of like um, come together and can probably tell us a more accurate story than if we were trying to like put our put our own ideas of like what is happening into the system. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, do you
2: have things built in the simulation that's like there's a huge dam or there's a I don't know truck that picks up the fish and things <laughs> like like are those things also built into your simulations?
0: Yes. Um, in a very simplified way. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm specifically looking a lot more at like how, um, like habitat availability and Mm. like based on flow temperature, how those things influence, um, intraspecific competition. So intraspecific just means like within the species. Mm. So competition between like bigger rainbow trout and smaller rainbow trout, Mm -hmm. um, how changing the availability of those things influences the growth rates. Um, and like, uh, scales up to population structure. Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to be manipulating things like um, flow at different times of year. So um, starting off with flow that is just like um, like the actual flow of the Stanislaw River, which is um, a managed river. So it's based on, you know, dam releases and stuff like that. Um, and then I'm also comparing that to a nearby river, Um, called the Calaveras, which is the only undammed river in the Central Valley. Mm. And kind of seeing if, like, okay, if flow was more like this, Mm. how would that change habitat availability? How would that then influence their growth rates and Mm -hmm. um, eventual migration pathways? Mm -hmm.
2: Because What kind of – can you talk us through a little um, of the, like, environmental conditions that are optimal to, like, these early stages of Omicus? Like, what kind of flows do they prefer? What kind of temperatures – So what do we know?
0: Yeah. So the conditions that they kind of evolved with um, are so basically like so in a hydrograph, which is basically like how we visualize flow over time, that you see peaks associated with winter precipitation and uh, spring snow melt. So that's Mm -hmm. when rivers are highest. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's going to be summer base flow, which is. Um, when there is uh, potentially drought conditions. In California, there's always drought conditions. Yeah. So really low water levels, basically just like um, whatever's like in the groundwater um, and also higher temperatures. So um, that kind of, so so Omicus um, evolved with that, with, with those environmental cues, kind of telling them what would be happening at different times of year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now in a lot of these managed watersheds, we, we have, like, flattened the hydrograph, is what we call it, where, like, our peak winter flows are lower and our base summer flows are higher. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, there's, you know, environmental, there's, like, water quality issues, especially with higher temperatures associated with climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, also for recreation, which is, like, an interesting thing to learn, that we, like, keep flows high over the summer for, like, rafting. Um,
2: mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I like to float in rivers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I don't like having to lift my butt up to avoid rocks yeah. and stuff. Yeah. And in order to keep water quality, like, safe for people and dogs and mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. downstream. Mm-hmm. So we we do have to, for human needs, like, manage um, how much water is being released. And mm-hmm. so that, that creates a lot more of a stable annual environment, mm. which... Um, it's hypothesized that the like homogenizing that like hydro climates that they experience year round has kind of also like homogenized their life history diversity mm. because there's there hasn't been a need for like reacting to dynamic conditions, mm-hmm. meaning that we're seeing more of what? So in a lot of these, um, especially like in the southern extent of the range, so southern central California. Um, a lot more populations where, um, more fish are becoming rainbow trout and less are becoming steelhead. Mm. Um, and so you, you go to some of these rivers, um, and you are finding like massive rainbow trout, um, because also like river is warmer, river's more stable. Um, so they, they can grow to the size that they would otherwise if they were to go to the ocean, Mm. but if they can do that you know, at home. Right. (laughs) Why would they go through the risk of migration? Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's basically, we've made things a little too cozy for them (laughs) and it's like hurting their, you know, resilience and diversity. (laughs) (laughs) They're just hibernating for life. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Um, I had, I had a question about sort of the deployment of this adaptive loop between your model and like what the policy implications could be. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of what are the levers that you could tweak based on the whatever results you get from your model? Like cause certain things aren't directly under your control, like the temperature or stuff like that. So what are the things that might change the policy based on your model?
0: Yeah. So um very little is under my control. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah, all I can really do is be like theoretically, if this were to happen, mm-hmm. you know, if we shifted like the timing of these flows. Um, then we could expect this outcome. Mm. Or if we um, added habitat or added connection to the floodplain, um, then it might mitigate the fact that um, we are we can't change the flows. So um, coming up with the different kinds of scenarios um, around that. Um, and really at the end of the day, there's like so much that goes into like hy- hydro management. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, managing these dam operations. And um, because a lot of, like, for example, Chinook salmon have, like, extremely different um, rearing condition needs than omicus. Not extremely different, but, like, different enough. Um, And so a lot of those populations are also ESA listed. Mm. So how do you pick one over the other um, if they need different things? Right. And you can only, like, press one button. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of, uh, leaving those things to people, people above me and, you know, after me Yeah, (laughs) being like, we, you know, I, we, we don't know how just like changing the flow or changing the habitat area changes their growth trajectories. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what y'all can do with that. (laughs) Hopefully someone can do something with that. That's, Mm -hmm. uh, not, not my job, (laughs) but, um, yeah, that's, that's really all I can do. in in that situation and it's still a big piece of the puzzle. So
2: I hope so. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: You mentioned earlier that, uh, this is sort of your first time, um, studying fish during your PhD. So how did you come to, um, that study and what did you do before that?
0: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, life history moments for me,
1: both Um, for the fish and for you. Yeah.
0: The path that Lauren chose. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, so I'm originally from South Florida, um, which, um, fun tropical environments with lots of weird reptiles and things. Um, and so I always kind of grew up like, I don't know, being the animal person of my household that like (laughs) caught the lizards in my backyard. Um, and so I uh, ended up going to the University of Florida for uh, wildlife ecology and conservation, like not really knowing what I was going to like specifically do there. I, I had some internships during high school working. One of them was working uh, at a pelican rehab center. One of them was working at a monkey zoo. So like, wow. like super standard high school that doesn't know what wildlife Ecology is, I don't know if that's that standard (laughs) pelicans and monkeys. That sounds so rad. Yeah. And my first like real wildlife job was working with snail kites, which is a kind of like wetland raptor, Mm. um, that eats snails. They're, they're interesting. Snail Um, kites. Yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, snail kites. (laughs) They're very, they're like a tropical species. So they only exist in like Florida and then South America. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, through classes and stuff, got really into reptiles and amphibians. Also, it was like kind of like our social group would go herping, which is like the reptile and amphibian version of birding, where you like <laughs> go out and a tromp around a swamp and look for frogs and drive up and down roads looking for snakes. And turn so, over rocks and things like that. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> my favorite things. I still do that uh, when I go hiking. Um, but yeah, so uh, did all that and got really into herps. Um so got some jobs working with um amphibians so I would do a lot of like surveying for larval amphibians like tadpoles um that led me to my masters which was working with hellbender salamanders um at through Clemson University um and so I was um researching like larval resource selection so what kind basically like what kinds of rocks do baby uh, hellbenders like <laughs> was the whole thing of my my master's thesis um and then through that, because uh, hellbenders are fully aquatic and live in beautiful mountain streams, not unlike the kind that we see here in Oregon. Um, and so I just really enjoyed working in streams. I enjoyed the kind of hap- like data associated with it, mm-hmm. like the, the linear hierarchical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a lot of snorkel surveys. And so like getting that like underwater view of everything really like changes your perception. What, so- what is
2: a snorkel survey? What do you do on them?
0: Um, so very simple, like just like observational survey, mm. um, where you're just like, um, so for a hellbender specifically, we would be like pretty much army crawling up the stream <gasps> and like flipping rocks, looking for where the larval hellbenders were. Cool. Um, I have done snorkel surveys for omegas, um, down in the Santa Saw and you basically just like, you, you go upstream a little bit and then you point yourself downstream and then just float and count fish. And it's like the funnest field work ever. Wow.
2: <laughs> and these are like clear, cool streams, yes. right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Very cold during a
0: wetsuit. Summer activity sounds like yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been trying to organize some like summer river snorkeling for like funsies out here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just re- got really into working in rivers and freshwater ecology, stream ecology. Um, and so uh, in order to be very lucrative in in that realm, uh, it's it's good to have like a fish thing under your belt because uh, fish are, are a thing that lives in rivers that mm-hmm. people care about. <laughs> so um, and like uh, snorkeling out east in like the Carolinas, there's a lot of like stocked rainbow trout. There's mm-hmm. brook trout and stuff. So I was already kind of like into salmonids. Mm-hmm. Um so, yeah, I was, like, really excited to uh, do a PhD and on salmonids. And, um, yeah, super, super different worlds. I-, I thought beforehand, because I had moved from, like, birds to herps to, you know, I had made those transitions that it would be a similar transition, but it was like, oh, this is a different field. <laughs> because it's
2: <laughs> because fish are so, like, commercially and, like, economically
0: important and they're so managed, do you think, like, yeah. that's why? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're just... They're, they're more a part of like mainstream life um, uh-huh. I think um, what salamanders are a part of mainstream life? I know it's it's horrible they should be a um, quote I wrote
2: down from our pre-interview is you said hellbender salamanders are my personality <laughs> <laughs> so that's how much Lauren loves hellbender salamanders
0: <laughs> yes um, as should everyone um, ask me about hellbenders if you ever see me um <laughs> Um, but yeah, basically like the economic association with fish, especially like marine fisheries, which like I don't work in at all. Like, Mm. do not ask me about the ocean. I do not know anything. (laughs) Um, like that's a, that's a whole other like level of commercialization that I don't even understand. Um, but yeah, like the words of are so different for like how we refer to like animals and populations Mm. instead of like, it's a lot more associated with like, I don't know, like yields and Mm -hmm. production Mm -hmm. and things like that Mm -hmm. versus like sort of
1: like in a step of farming almost right yeah yeah yeah, exactly
0: and especially like we we hatchery raise so many of these fish um so like so many of these populations are like subsidized by hatchery Mm -hmm. fish um so we're basically like just pumping out farmed you know trout and salmon yeah just to keep the populations up yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of makes it worse, but we're also stuck at that because <laughs> we started it and we made it worse and now we can't leave. we just got to <laughs> stay on this train. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: so you're here now, you're a fourth year PhD candidate. Where do you sort of see, see your future work heading?
0: Um, so I definitely envision myself staying in academia. Um, and so I, I really like teaching, which is something that I've uh, mostly discovered through my mentorship of undergrads, through my master's. I had... Um, some like awesome people that, um, they did like little field courses with me and then became my techs and it was like really fulfilling. So I definitely want to teach and I, I would like to do research kind of at a, at a smaller scale. So like teaching undergrads how to do research, do like small projects with undergrads. Um, I used to think that I wanted to do the like greater, you know, R1 research professor, Mm -hmm. uh, life, um, but I think I had never really been to a school quite as big and intimidating as OSU. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, after kind of seeing what that's like here, I'm like, I, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Being a professor at an R1. Oh, yeah. It, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A lot of grants, right? Yeah. yeah. And
0: like just the amount of money and accounting. um, Yeah. I feel like it would, um, at least for me and what I want for myself, I feel like it would take away from like the reason I have done all of this, Mm -hmm. um, which is just that I like ecology Mm -hmm. and like to be a nerd about it and like Mm -hmm. to share being a nerd about it. Mm -hmm. So yeah.
2: Yeah. And to float downstream.
0: Yeah. It's my favorite thing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we're sort of trying to um, bring the podcast to a close, that brings us to um, a, one of our traditions that we always ask about, which is, um, what is your favorite part of your research?
0: Um, my favorite part of my research, which I don't think it's like specific to my research. I think it's just like part of research in general. It's just like solving little puzzles. Um, like the problem solving aspect of it is like really satisfying. And, you know, sometimes I wish that there would be a step that did not require problem solving. <laughs> It yeah. seems like every new step requires problem solving. Um, but it is just like so fun to like tinker with something that is unknown mm-hmm. and like try and figure it out um, and and see where you can get with it. So, yeah, that's just like can be so frustrating, but also like so fulfilling and, you know, makes you feel good about yourself when you get it. <laughs>
2: Uh, Yeah, the problem solving. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes you just want to skip it all. Sometimes
0: it's like, (laughs) someone please solve my problem.
2: (laughs) Please, someone have answered my question already on Google. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: The second tradition that we have on the show is that we ask you to give a piece of advice. um, And uh, that can be to anyone of your choosing. So tell us who this is for and what it is.
0: So I think uh, my advice is just to like... Anyone kind of starting off in an ecology, maybe like you're an undergrad or, you know, thinking of changing careers to ecology. um, I think a lot of people get kind of like uh, tunnel visioned into like, oh, I like this thing and this is what I'm going to do always. And this is the only thing I'm ever going to study. But and and a lot of people like that works out really well for like people who have like only studied birds their entire life. Mm -hmm. Or like there's a lot of like kind of pigeonholing yourself into like a taxa that happens in this field. And so I've had a very different experience where I have kind of moved around a lot and kind of like gone with the flow of, um, studying different things. And I feel like it has really like, it it has made me realize that you like, you don't really know what you're going to like until you do it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just, it's so valuable to like dip your toe in different things. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you never know like what will be applied from like one thing to the other. And if like you with that specific variable experience don't come in and make those connections. Like who else will? Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, sometimes I, I feel like it, it's good to to diversify a little bit more than mm-hmm. than we do. I think that's great advice.
1: Cool. So the last tradition we have is that you got to choose your outro song. So um, I'm so, so excited th- for it. <laughs> Perfect. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you chose and and why?
0: Uh, sure. Yeah, I chose Hurricanes by uh, Rina Sawayama. Um, not for any like a deep reason, just because I think she's awesome. And I feel like whenever I mention her, people don't know that she exists. Um, and it's yeah. just a very good kind of like feel good punchy song. So yeah, good way to end <laughs> the week bring us into Monday Definitely. yeah I could have been pretty basic and chosen a Taylor Swift song but <laughs> I needed to defy expectations
2: so. <laughs> um, Lauren it has been so much fun having you on uh, I think both Joseph and I have learned a lot one thing that fish get trucked around trucked dance. around that yeah, look is, around for that those is <laughs> wild I'm going to think about that for a long time luxury
1: uh, limos for these, yeah. for these fish humvees or something yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah I, I hope to see it one day and I'll report back oh, you've never seen it no I oh, just
2: okay. know a occurs okay you, you've gotta you've gotta get down to one of those dams
1: <laughs> all right well thank you very much for being on the show and with that we will go into your song
0: yeah thank you so much and- the same Do your good just
1: to feel the- Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID.
0: This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamat. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow this show and podcast to be possible.
2: This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.